Well, hey there, it's Christina here. Just a quick note to let you know that I am running masterclasses for the next two weeks on how you can build your best green life. It's all about how to get past the overwhelm and still make an impact, but without burning yourself out. It's a formula that I developed and it really saved me. I was teaching environmental sustainability, but I got to the point where I felt like I was just swimming so hard to stay in one place and I was barely keeping my head above water. So I had to develop some systems to help me determine the most sustainable steps to take, whether it be with a home renovation or packing a lunch or just figuring out how to spend my time. It allowed me to do the work effectively and not burn myself out, given all of the grief that can come with being such an empathic and caring human, like I know so many of you are as well. So that's what I'm going to share with you in this masterclass. It's really packed full of useful tools that you can implement right away. And I am going to be telling you about my brand new signature program that I am launching called the Eco Impact Academy. It is for eco-conscious people who want to go from feeling overwhelmed to having a clear roadmap so that you can make a change in the world, the one that you know you are meant to make. So if this sounds like you, I think you are going to love this free masterclass on how to build your best green life. To register, just head on over to my website. It's christinahunterflourishing.com. That's Christina with a K. There you'll find the registration button right on the main page. And I would love to see you in those masterclasses. Okay, now let's get into this episode. Welcome, my flourishing friends. Today, I'm so excited. We get to talk about mentoring nature connections with children. And today, my guest is Lauren McLean, and she works with teachers and parents and has loads of resources and ideas to help foster nature connections with children and to build learning along the way. In addition, she even has a book coming out called Me and My Sit Spot. So it's a really fun episode with lots of practical advice for children of all ages, really, for all of us to be able to connect better with nature. Let's dive in. I'm Christina Hunter, and you are listening to the Live Well Green podcast, all about sustainable well-being and green living. We explore how to do what is good for the planet and for ourselves in order to truly flourish. Welcome. We've got Lauren McLean here with us. She helps teachers and parents mentor nature connections in children, and she has all kinds of resources for teachers and parents. So we'll get into those today. But before we get into the actual activities, Lauren, I would love to get a little bit more about you. What made you so interested in emergent place-based learning? And can you describe that for us? 
Absolutely. First, thank you for having me here. And I know we're both coming from different lands. So I just want to take a moment to describe the area that I'm coming from as a land acknowledgement. I come from Port Moody in British Columbia. And I'm right at the top of a mountain overlooking the Burrard Inlet, uh, which is a coastal fjord that leads out into the Pacific Ocean. So where I am specifically is the land of the Quaquitlam First Nations. Part of that is related to my passion for emergent learning, outdoor learning and place-based learning. I read the book Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre many years ago. It was just a... Kind of a wake up call for me. This, uh, this yeah. notion of nature deficit disorder and vitamin N. Mm-hmm. And the more time we can spend outside, the more we're likely to take care of it. And I would say it, I was that late bloomer in nature education. I spent a lot of time outside as a young kid. I was always in the ditches catching tadpoles and the frogs and mm-hmm. lying out in nice. a field of ferns at our cabin, but I didn't necessarily understand the connections that I was seeing with the land and with the animals and the plants. And so I think as an adult, I have this new appreciation for nature connections. So that's why I'm really trying to focus on the mentoring side of things. So I'm being mentored by people and vice versa. I'm trying to pass that knowledge forward as well. People that have inspired me are, are friends and colleagues like Janice Nowakowski, The Soaring Eagle Nature School is where I've learned a lot of nature immersion programs. And Wilderness Awareness School is I'm currently taking one of their independent study programs. It's called the Kamana Course. So those are sort of my network. That's who I'm surrounding myself with to help me on my journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of curriculum, emergent curriculum learning, really does come from an early childhood education standpoint where... It believes that children are more successful when the activities are based on the child's interests and their strengths. So you might see educators observing and listening to their learners and then nudging them a bit further. So if I notice that a kid makes a comment about the dandelions, maybe I'm going to wait and use the art of questioning to sort of push them a bit further. So did they notice how many petals there were. Well, is that the same or different than the amount of petals that the daisy has over on the other side of the field? And so that is emergent curriculum. We're waiting for those little moments. And then we're trying to pick those moments and keep the learning going up the mountain instead of petering out. (laughs) Uh, In terms of place-based learning, we really are, again, we're learning from the land, but we're sort of putting the learners in the mindset of the landscape and how our experiences on the land can relate to cross-curricular learning, how learning about mathematics and science and art and language arts, literacy. And we're also trying to have a historical context built in through different perspectives. So that's my biggest learning this year is understanding what voices are being told from the land but what voices aren't being told from the land? What perspectives are missing? Mm-hmm. So how can we incorporate other resources? It might be books. It might be community members to try to fill in the gaps. And so we can have a holistic understanding of how the land all works together. 
I think that's wonderful because, of course, we know there's lots of learning from just getting children and adults, for that matter, out onto the land and having the experience. But there's so much that can be added to enrich that opportunity, as you talked about, just the different numbers of petals on a different flower. And you can get into, you know, higher biology, you know, principles through that. Or we can also talk about Indigenous lands and history with Indigenous people and all kinds of interesting place-based learning when we get the opportunity, we're prepared to speak to those things when we're out in nature. That's that's really lovely. So that's kind of where you're centered and what you do in your profession and really what drives you, it sounds like. And you have a podcast on this topic as well. In your podcast, I heard you tell a story of two young boys who were out on a field trip with you. And you were standing on a rocky beach and you overheard them wishing that they could go to the beach. Do you want to just tell us about that? Right. So I was not their teacher. I was a kindergarten teacher, but they needed lots of adults to come on to this outdoor education weekend. So I was able to join them and we had to take a boat up to the location and everybody's busy unloading the bags off the dock. And so I decided, well, I'll take a group of students down to the rocky shore and we'll, we'll learn how to skip rocks. We'll uncover rocks to look for a different life by the shore. And I did overhear a couple students say, wow, this place reminds me from, of that book, Salmon for Simon, which I do have to say is still my favorite book of all times. <laughs> and they had said, it would be so neat to go to a beach one day. And so I kind of walked over and I said, actually, boys, we are on a beach right now. And there really was a bit of trepidation for them believing that we were on a beach. Because in the story, the beach is sandy. And that's why he's able to dig a a trough for the salmon to go down to the water. And we were standing on a rocky beach. Mm -hmm. And so there was this moment of, A, not believing me, and (laughs) B, they understood what a beach was. They were well-read students, book smart, but it was learning where we were at that moment and making those connections between real life and books. And so it was a really eye-opening experience. Yeah, It was just so wonderful that whole weekend about learning from the land and what it had to offer. And they were able to uncover the learning based Mm -hmm. off of their lived experiences. Mm -hmm. So they weren't just learning from reading a book. They were breathing the air. They were playing with the rocks, the heavy rocks. Well, which rocks do the crabs live under? Which rocks don't crabs live under? So they had a lot of lived experiences that they will remember for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think more than if they were just to read a little passage from a book, this was really visceral learning for them. Yeah. So they understood what a beach looked like from from the books or their other experiences of different beaches, but they weren't aware that they were standing on a beach, even though it was a rocky beach. That's really important for us all to remember that kids need to have the world revealed to them through these experiences, right? That's uh, just a lovely example of of what you talked about. We're making those connections with real life, right? not just based on sort of book learning and what they might get in the classroom. Yeah, there is a time and a place for that explicit teaching, as you were saying. Sometimes we do need to give information to students, that didactic kind of form of teaching. Mm-hmm. And other times we are just giving them the space to to sit and observe and be mindful of where they are and learning it sort of through osmosis, but having that balance of implicit and explicit teaching. 
Lovely. That's great. And you have a lot of great activities for teachers, but also for parents that you talk about. But one of the things before we get into that, one of the things that you talk about is supporting nature routines. Can you tell us a little bit about what's involved in creating a nature routine? Absolutely. So again, a lot of my learning does come from the book Coyote's Guide to Connecting with Nature by John Young. In it, he does talk about several nature routines. So there's the sit spot, there's nature walks or animal form. So walking in a different animal, pretending you're a different animal, mapping, nature journals, bird language is one of my favorites to explore with students. I am trying to make that connection a bit more specific to working with educators and with families. So how can we do a nature walk with a group of learners? And how does that fit into our BC curriculum? How do we tie in nature journaling into our BC curriculum or curriculum throughout Canada or in the States? In terms of how we begin nature routines, if I'm thinking with an educator lens, I'm always trying to make the indoor expectations similar to outdoor expectations. Hmm. That means if we're, okay. if we do circle time in the classroom, we're going to sit together. We listen nicely. We respect each other. We respect ourselves. That's the same expectations for when we're doing a circle time outdoors. So mm-hmm. yes, there might be more distractions. The wind's going. Maybe we hear a dog barking and that's okay. We'll give ourselves pause. We'll pay attention to those distractions because it's impossible to ignore things like a dog barking. Well, maybe that's telling us something exciting that we should go follow. Mm-hmm. So we'll take a pause. We'll listen to the distraction and then we come back together. In terms of how we start those routines in in September, again, for educators, but also if you're a family just starting to go take out your young kids outside, we really like to start with sensory focus. Mm -hmm. So what would be the safest sensory? Probably hearing because we don't have to touch anything. (laughs) So we're going to listen for birds, for example. So we would talk about there's two really simple bird languages that we can listen to. There are five altogether, but there are two that we're most likely going to hear. And that's either their song or their alarm. So they are on the opposite sides of the spectrum. And we talk about how they're communicating and why they're communicating that way. So it's probably telling us something because birds are very intentional and purposeful behind their behaviors and their language because it's a flight or fight sort of thing, right? So they they can't expend too much energy. (laughs) They need to conserve as much as they can. So again, we'll listen for birds or we'll listen for the wind. Another sensory focus that we could start with is looking, right? So we're going to use our sight. So we're going to look for different shades of green or we're going to, with our older kids, we're going to look for different angles outside. So can we find right angles in nature? Well, is that common? Is that uncommon? Can we find examples of obtuse angles? Can we find non-examples of (laughs) obtuse angles, right? So again, we're looking for different ways to incorporate our curriculum into our outdoor exploration time. Yeah. So that routine means we're going to, first of all, transfer the indoor sort of rules around Mm -hmm. behavior. Those are also the same outdoors in terms of safety and respect and that type of thing. But we know we're in a different environment. So we're also going to enjoy that environment when something comes up. And then you suggest starting slow and easy. And the easiest with the century is to start with listening Mm -hmm. and explore that. And then you can move on to, you know, looking and, and finding different things. And depending on the age of the child, you might look for, you know, more complex 
things in nature and do some learning around that. So anything else around establishing this routine for educators and for parents who might also be doing education with their kids? One of the best ways that we found with our young learners is just making sure that we are consistent. So we decided several years ago that we were going to commit to daily nature walks. So every day we went out for a very short walk. So we wanted Mm -hmm. to be successful and positive. So we were going to go out for one minute and maybe to excite our learners, we're going to give them a prompt so that Mm -hmm. they have something to focus on. Now, I would recommend a book by Dr. Jillian Judson. It's called The Walking Curriculum. Mm. It's a really nice, simple book that gives you different examples of questions and themes that you can focus on when you're walking. So one would be a lovely and unlovely walk. So, okay, kids, we're going to go outside. We're going to go up the south path, across the soccer field, and back down by the garden plots. So that's our route. As we're walking, I want us all to look for items that are lovely and in your mind also unlovely. And so (laughs) off we go and we're either walking by yourself or we're walking with a partner and we're chatting and we're stopping and we're sharing. And again, we're starting really slow that way. It wasn't a long walk. We had a focus and then we get to debrief at the end of the walk and share ideas with each other. Yeah. Maybe the next day, we're going to extend our walk a bit further. Maybe we do the lap one direction, and then we switch, we go back the other direction to see if our perspective changes. We just keep building from there. Start slow, but do it every day, even if it's very small and simple and fun. They get to chat with their friends and do other things. And so it's not too prescribed, I guess. Not too Um, prescribed, not too taxing. Mm -hmm. And then you move up from there, I'm guessing. Is that is that the plan? Yeah. So again, we would change the topic that we're focusing on. We change our partners. We change the route. So we're seeing different plants, different animals. We're walking on different textures. That was a big learning curve for myself, I would say maybe seven <laughs> years ago. We were so used to walking on the paved trail <laughs> that when we went on our first field trip to a forest, because I was working at a quite an urban school, I did forget to remember how different it is to walk on a forest floor compared to a paved floor. So our first activity was scrapped because we needed time to learn to practice on uneven ground, walking over a route, knowing that we actually did have to look down onto the ground. That was so much fun for them to walk on roots, walk on the grass, walk on twigs. And then we played nature games based off of that observation There's a wonderful nature game called fox walking, Mm -hmm. where we would talk to the learners about how stealth foxes are because they have to be. (laughs) And when we look at foxes walking along the horizon, their bodies don't go up and down. They walk straight across. Their heads don't move. And because they need to be so quiet when they're hunting, the way they walk is they actually put their toes down first. And if they don't make a sound, then they lower their heel down and then their opposite foot can go. But if they put their toe down and a twig cracks, they have to pick their toe back up and move it into a new location. So we would make an obstacle course and we would practice our fox walking, trying not to make any sounds. You know, I've long said that my university students who are adults really like the same things that young children like. And we enjoyed, you know, mucking around in (laughs) <laughs> the peat bog. And we really enjoyed the texture of walking on the really incredibly soft cushioned hummocks of the tundra. 
and found it really hard to walk on the the beach and the, the, you know that part of the the tundra roots of our hiking courses. So I think it's really incredible. We we have all of this experiences that maybe kids are having for the first time, but maybe adults are having for the first time too. And it's it's worth exploring that and spending time enjoying it. But so vital for paying attention to nature and really connecting with nature through this. So that's lovely. Now, so that routine is about continuing on starting small and building up from there. Is that about right? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, good. Well, you have a bunch of other activities. And one of those is a nature walk that you do with teachers and parents that they can do with their children. Can you tell us a little bit more about the nature walks? You've mentioned a little bit about it. But can you talk about how parents can access nature during a regular day, no matter where they live? Absolutely. And I think part of that was when we're families, especially in urban areas, mm. it's easy to think, well, there's not a lot of nature here. Mm-hmm. So there are resources that are, are called sidewalk math, right? So we're learning different ways to observe our concrete jungle nature landscapes. So there's still a lot that we can learn from paved blacktop areas. When we are walking through the city, I will often say to my toddler, like, well, let's look for different signs or evidence of motion. Mm-hmm. So again, so we're walking and I want him to try to find a leaf falling. Oh, that's moving from up to down. So again, we're working on our, I have to add in my little mathematical lens, but we are adding spatial reasoning vocabulary into our nature walks, left, right, up, down, far, near. If we're not seeing something moving, can we see evidence that something moved before we got there. So if I see a leaf on the ground, but it's not moving, well, it must have got there somewhere. So we'll we'll kind of talk about, well, how did that get there? We didn't see it, but it must have happened somehow. And so again, we're, we're working on our inferring skills outside, not necessarily out in the forest or on a field. We can do that on the sidewalk. Yeah, no, that's really lovely. You're talking about the trees, which we often will still have in that urban environment. And that is nature. And we kind of forget that, you know, there's still a lot to be learned from this urban setting. So there's always an ant on the sidewalk or, you know, something that we can learn from even melting snow and it's partly ice and it's partly water and, you know, that type of thing. There's a lot of things that we can find on those beaten paths that we can't find out in the forest. So knowing what plants grow where, we can find plantain often on the side of the sidewalks because one of the names for plantain is white man's footprint because that's where our trails were going. So we, the grass was no longer growing there. Mm-hmm. And now this weed or a flower that's growing in the wrong place, <laughs> we say yeah. with our kids, Just I don't like the word weed. <laughs> yeah. And so we can find plantain in those well or heavy traffic areas. Mm-hmm. Plantain does have a lot of medicinal properties. So then we can go into that. Well, this is so incredible. If we had an insect bite, we could take a clean <laughs> plantain leaf. We could chew it up or scrunch it up a little bit and rub it onto our, our insect bite. And that would act as a insect reliever for the itching and the burning that would feel on there. That's excellent. Yeah. So there's really still a lot that can be learned from these urban settings or from a forest path that's well, well trodden. And if we know a little bit about indigenous knowledge of the 
plants and the names of it and, and the historical uses and that type of thing. There's still so much that people can do, even in an urban setting. Just getting yeah. outdoors is so important. And of course, we always have the elements all around us. <laughs> so whenever we're outdoors, we're, we're in nature. Even if it doesn't feel like we're walking in a forest, we still can experience nature. You know, it doesn't have to involve a field trip once a year to the forest, right? So, and I think that's important for parents to also realize. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another easily accessible nature element, when a robin comes by, we can look at the intonations of their bird call. So is it a high pitch, a low pitch? When they are alarmed and that crow was on the ground, where is it flying to? So does it feel comfortable on the lowest branch of the tree? Does it like to go at the tallest branch of the tree or does it prefer being even higher up on a house? So Mm -hmm. then we can look at why they go in that direction. Again, they would conserve their energy. So they're only going to go as high as they need to, to feel safe. And then what we do with our learners is we notice those bird behaviors and then we would map it. So we'd get out our nature journals and we would draw the birds and maybe we'd draw a little line showing the flight path and then draw the tree or the house. And then we, you know, could do some stories around that. Oh, that's fun, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Okay. So nature walks can happen anywhere and it's just a matter of observing and having that knowledge to share with children or helping them to find the answers to their questions, I suppose, later on, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Now, you also talk about engaging in an activity called the sit spot that you mentioned briefly. Can you give us an idea what that means and how we might do that with children? Yes, I think sit spots for me is one of the most mindful nature routines that we can encourage our learners to do. Mm -hmm. So it is encouraging students to find a place where they can sit, be comfortable and observe land, observe the birds, observe colors, observe sounds. When we're doing it with a bunch of learners, 20 students, we do have to encourage that they find places that are far enough away from their friends that it's not distracting. Mm -hmm. But you still need to be able to, for safety reasons, Mm -hmm. see the teacher and be able to hear the teacher for instructions. So when I go out, we'll go for a walk, we'll point out a few different areas that, wow, I like that little patch of grass because if I were to choose that as my sit spot, I could see three different types of trees. I can see two different types of shrubs. So I have a variety of things to look at. I don't necessarily want to be in a place where I'm really closed in and I don't have a great viewpoint of variety. We're trying to encourage looking for connections in the land, right? So if I see, wow, I'm at a sit spot and I see a cedar tree and nothing's growing underneath it. That's really interesting. But over there by my dogwood tree, I can see some ferns growing right beside it. Is that intentional? Is that just a coincidence? Right. And so we're again, we're, we're encouraging them to go to their sit spot with a critical mind and observe as many different things as they can. Similar to how we would do a nature walk, we would encourage the students to go to a sit spot with a specific prompt in mind. Sometimes, sometimes I just want them to go sit and listen for their own passions. Yeah. Other times I'm going to say, wow, okay, Christina, I'd really like you to go to your sit spot and listen for the wind. Come back after maybe 30 seconds because we're supposed to be nice and quiet. So again, similar to the nature walk, we want to encourage positive, successful routines. So 30 seconds is really short for kids to be able to attain. Come back, let's share out our observations. 
And now I'm going to give you something new to focus on. I want you to go back to your sit spot and try to find something green. Really simple. Out you go. And now I want you to come back, maybe try to find something lighter green or darker green. So again, we're going to play with different shades. If I'm with older kids, maybe I'm going to ask them to find examples of plants that grow in an alternating pattern, leaf or uh, opposite pattern leaf or world. So again, I'm asking them to find something quite specific. If they don't find something, that's fine. Maybe they notice something else about the plant that they noticed. There's a whole wide range of prompts that we can do with our learners. And it actually is a book. I Oh dear, I don't remember the author off the top of my head, but it's called Sit Spot and the Art of Inner Tracking. So it is for adults, but we can take a lot of that learning and transfer it to our youngest learners and with our families how to notice how you feel when you're at your sit spot. So maybe we're just doing a social emotional theme to our sit spot. When I'm sitting here, do I feel comfortable? Do I feel anxious? Why am I feeling anxious? Do I feel hopeful? What is it that I'm looking at that makes me feel hopeful and sort of digging into those relationships? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. And just the intention, as you mentioned, is to allow children to be mindful in mm-hmm. and either collecting some information that they've been set out to do or mindfully observe or mindfully listen or to just sit with their emotions and see how it feels. All of that is really lovely because of course, mindfulness has many benefits and mindfulness in nature has added benefits as well. So I talk a lot about that for adults, for us to do, you know, so obviously bringing that to children is really beneficial. So that's basically the sit spot. They choose a place that is comfortable, where they're far enough away from their friends to not be distracted by their friends, but close enough to hear the teacher or parent. They sit there for a period of time that's appropriate to the activity and I suppose to the, the child and the child's age. And they may have an intention that you've sent them away with or an activity or something else. Is there anything else that we need to think about with the sit spots, like any other types of things that we might send them off to do? So I would send learners out to their sit spot, perhaps with a field guide and a nature journal. So we can buy those waterproof field guides from almost any bookstore. They kind of fold open like a fan and you can get them on mushrooms and trees and flowers and local plants. So perhaps we're asking learners to go to their sit spot and maybe just draw something from the field guide. Maybe they can draw something that they see a match with. So I've got a cedar tree in my book and I'm looking at a cedar tree. So I'm going to look for similarities. The field guides always have great descriptions with scientific knowledge, but also mathematical knowledge. So we can look at the height of trees or again, the, the leaf growing pattern or the flower arrangements, or we can look for differences. So perhaps if I have a bird field guide and I'm looking in the field guide at a, an American robin, but I don't see any out at my sit spot, but I do see the house finch underneath a little shrub there because they love, they love to be a little hidden. So I'm going to look for the differences and similarities in my field guides. I think field guides are a great way to sort of get us out of the box when we're learning because we often only focus on what we see, but often there's a lot of stuff that we don't see that might be there. Again, especially with birds, they're underneath the bushes or they're out roosting. So we don't see them at the time that we're there. We often do actually talk about when we're out birding, this idea of a bird plow. So when we're out walking, 
it's like a snowplow, right? We're pushing everything out with our noise and our energy. So, and that's okay. We just have to be aware of our impact on the land. And when we go to our sit spot, because of that bird plow, we might have to sit a bit longer in order for nature to sort of return back to its natural rhythms and patterns. Mm -hmm. So we have to be patient enough to allow everything to simmer down and accept us as a part of being part of the landscape. Absolutely. Yes, we have heard definitely uh, beautiful Indigenous teachings around that, that we need to spend time with the land and right. it will reveal itself to us in time. That's really lovely. And you also mentioned uh, Nature Journal. That's another thing that I've done with my university students. But tell us a little bit more about that and what's involved in nature journaling and sit spots. Well, the wonderful thing about nature journaling is sky's the limit. So we can either have nature journaling be an imaginative experience for kids. So we can look at something. Wow, that really reminds me of the unicorn story that I read last night with my mom and dad. So maybe I'm going to draw a unicorn in my nature journal in the setting of where I'm looking. Mm -hmm. So we can incorporate imaginative experiences with lived experiences. If I'm with older students, maybe I'm going to encourage their drawings to be a bit more scientific. So I really want you to look closely. Here's your magnifying glass. And I want you to notice if that leaf has toothy edges, I want you to notice the shape of that leaf. Is it oval, oblong? Is it patterned? Are they growing in opposite patterns or in alternating patterns? Because not all flowers look the same. It's, it's incredible how different each plant is from each other. We'll talk about labeling captions, you know, maybe we'll make a comic book out of what we're watching right there. So again, the nature journal is such a open, inclusive way to capture students thinking, mm-hmm. and, but giving them enough time that they can let their ideas sort of pour down on paper. If our nature journals are rushed, the learning is rushed, there's not a lot of intentionality behind what they're putting down on paper. So sometimes they need nudges and encouragement. Sometimes they just want to have this time and space to write down and draw what they feel like. Sometimes learners are not comfortable with their artistic (laughs) capabilities. And I say that jokingly because I am that person. I, Unless I am drawing something directly in front of me, I have a very hard time visualizing it and then putting it down on paper. So what are the other ways that we can put things down on paper? We have a foraging rule, a one to seven ratio. So if you wanted to collect items and put it into your nature journal to avoid maybe that uncomfortable feeling of not being a good artist, if you can count seven dandelions, for instance, you're allowed to take one. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk, and I know you're a big sustainability educator. So we talk about we need to maintain that little patch of dandelions. It's, they still are really important to the birds, bees. We talk about their importance and why we leave plants behind. I take one for myself. I leave some for nature. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, mm-hmm. that's really lovely. So they could be journaling, they could be drawing. And if there's plenty in the wilderness, they can take one. One. Right? Yeah. yeah. Best if it's a loose part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. If it's material, go for it. But if we are picking a live item, we don't, A, don't do that often, or we have that foraging rule. That's really important. And not to take things in national parks as well. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's really great. I love this idea. The sit spot, 
with intentional activities or more freeform and allowing them to simply be mindful. They might have a journal or a field guide with them, some other Mm -hmm. activities. So you can obviously apply this in a huge variety of different ways for kids of all ages and whether it be in the teaching setting or for parents to find activities for, for their own kids as they're out and about and wanting to do something meaningful in nature. All right. That's lovely. Now you talk about having a favorite activity to do with kids in nature. Do you want to just tell us about that? I almost have too many and it really does depend (laughs) on the age of our learners. So when I'm working with the real littles, something that's tangible for them is working with colors out in nature. So we'll often provide them with paint chips or paint swatches so that they can go and and do some matching. Mm. So green isn't always just green. So let's look at all the varieties and all the shades. And again, playing with that mathematical knowledge of darker, lighter. When I'm working with kindergarten learners, we do a lot of working with storytelling outside. I mean, the landscape just supports stories in all sizes and shapes. So we can learn again about our indigenous stories about how land and animals and their, how their relationships rely on each other. There's a great one about the mouse and the Douglas fir. Have you heard that story? Or is it, I think it is a pretty typical West Coast story. Or again, I love talking about bird language and doing bird skits. So we'll act out a bird language as birds ourselves. Uh, With older learners, I love doing mapping activities. So it really helps them, again, with that spatial reasoning lens, but we're really digging into understanding our land and what fits in it. How does it relate to each other? What stories live there? What's included in our maps and what's not included in our maps, but should be included in our maps? <laughs> that could be languages. So why aren't all our signs in English and in French and also in Coast Salish? There's great websites that have firstvoices.ca or is it .org where we can type in a word and we'll get our local indigenous word for that plant. And actually that was a side project of mine I was making with my wood burning pen. I was making some outlines of different tree leaves. So I was doing a vine maple and then again, I labeled it with the English word, the Latin, the scientific word and with our Coast Salish word. So again, we're trying to expand our understanding of where that plant lives, can we map it and can we track it over the seasons? So does a vine maple always stay the same? Well, let's go look at it in September. Let's go map it and observe it again in November. Let's go back in February and let's go back in June. We're going often different seasons, different weathers and seeing how things change. But again, I I love bringing it back to stories and mapping. Yeah. Okay. I love these ideas. Yeah, the mapping is is definitely interesting. And, you know, we've certainly done a lot around that green mapping and understanding places from different perspectives and the stories that are told or not told. And, um, and that's really lovely. We'll, we'll do a link to the first voices in the, um, here. That's such an incredible app. So that's really wonderful. So you've got a bunch of favorite ones, but uh, for, for the little, little kids, you like to look about at color matching and just bringing 
<laughs> bringing different paint chips and that kind of thing into not literal paint, but the type no. you get from hardware the decorating hardware yeah. <laughs> section of the store <laughs> and um, help them match different colors. And that's really exciting and bringing story into it as well, or even acting out bird languages and so on. Those are really nice activities. So I love all of this, Lauren. It's been really fun to think about you and other teachers and parents educating kids in nature and helping them to really connect with nature. I love what you're doing here. And I thank you so much for sharing this with our listeners here. Would you mind just giving us some insight into where people can get in touch with you for these and other resources? Absolutely. So again, my website is mentoringnatureconnections.ca. You can also follow me on Twitter at LK McLean, M-A-C-L-E-A-N. And I'm under Instagram and Facebook as Mentoring Nature Connections. So that's my tag as well. I know I did mention the story about the mouse and the Douglas fir. So should I explain that a bit further? I feel oh. bad that I sort of dropped it, but then didn't really... <laughs> Let's do that. How, let's have a little story time to finish okay. it off. We've I just feel bad that I kind of, I realized that <laughs> I kind of just sprinkled it in there without really explaining it. So let's um, talk about the most fur. Yeah, it's one of the stories that help learners identify what a Douglas fir tree is. So their cones are, are quite large. It's probably about the length of my finger. The story goes, and I'm probably not going to do it justice, but there are all the animals in the forest. And unfortunately, there was a forest fire. So all the animals were fleeing out of the forest. So the, the deer can run so fast and bound over any obstacles. So they were able to get out really fast. The birds were able to fly and soar over top of the trees and get to safety. The mice, unfortunately, they aren't, weren't quite fast enough. So they were asking the different trees for help to save them from the forest fire. So they went up to the cedar tree and said, cedar tree, do you mind protecting me from the forest fire? And the cedar said, I'm so sorry. My bark's not quite strong enough. You might have to find somewhere else to hide. So he went to the vine maple and said, vine maple, would you mind saving me from this forest fire? And again, he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so flexible. I might not be strong enough you should go ask the Douglas fir. So the mouse ran up to the Douglas fir and said, would you mind helping protect me from the forest? And the Douglas fir said, absolutely. My bark is so thick and strong. So climb on up my trunk and tuck yourself into one of my cones and stay there until the forest fire dissipates. All the mice were saved. Mm. And to this day, when you look at a Douglas fir cone, you can see that under each scale, there's, it looks like mouse feet and a little tail hanging out of each scale. And that's how we understand and identify what a Douglas fir cone is. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful story. Surely has indigenous roots, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah, that's really, really wonderful. Thank you for bringing us the story of the mouse and the Douglas fir as uh, a great way to end off our discussion about mentoring nature connections in children. Yes, thank you so much much for having me. Wasn't that fun? I could just picture those old growth forests on the west coast of British Columbia as she was talking about doing some of those exercises with children out in nature. So what a lovely interview and so many great ideas from Lauren. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. I hope that you loved this episode. And if you would like to explore these issues further, please 
head on over to my website. It is christinahunterflourishing.com. That's Christina with a K. There you'll find all kinds of free downloadable resources, including my Sustainable Wellbeing Starter Kit and the Green Home Guide. While you're there, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out once a week and is full of resources and inspiration and news from the flourishing community. And if you are looking for a great way to send a gift to a friend with cancer, please check out theunexpectedgiftbox.com. Finally, if you like what you are hearing, please leave me a review wherever you get your podcasts. I can't wait to talk to you again. Until then, live well green, my flourishing friends. Bye for now.